Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. So uh, this summer, we had a lot of movement, not just around our church, but, uh, you know, in our interpersonal relationships, a lot of families, you know, moving houses, moving away. And so we found ourselves helping people move quite a bit this summer. And on this particular day, as we are helping some of our friends move, uh, it was a little different in the sense that my wife and my daughter went ahead of us to help kind of like begin the cleaning process and all that kind of stuff. So me and my son Judah hop in the car. We come later uh, to help with moving and we show up at the house. We like the the street is lined with cars because everyone else is already there. We showed up a little late. And so uh, I noticed there's no one in the driveway. So I pull in the driveway and we get out, we go in the house and we're, you know, we walk in and no one's there. And I'm like, they must be downstairs. So we're walking around, we go downstairs, like, hey, where is everybody? And it, come back upstairs, I'm looking around and it's in that moment that I realized something that I don't notice anything in this house. I was in the wrong house. <laughs> now, I don't know if you've ever broken and entered into someone's house, all right? But from experience, it feels a little weird, okay? Especially when you do it on accident. You get that like, that like sinking feeling in your stomach, like your heart's in your throat, you know? And we're in Iowa and I'm like, we're gonna get shot. We're totally... We're gonna get shot, and Judah's over here. He's got, he took his shoes off, you know? He's just chilling in the kitchen. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know, I guess this is where we're supposed to, I'm like, bud, we, we need to leave. Like, we need to get out of here. <laughs> so we finally, we made our way over, you know, to the, to the correct house, but it was in that moment as I'm standing in a stranger's house that I was acutely aware that I did not belong here. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had that feeling like, I don't belong. Maybe some of you with your kids beginning school a couple weeks ago, maybe some of your conversations have been revolving around them not feeling like they belong. They don't know who to play with at recess. Maybe, they, maybe they're in middle school now and like everything's new and you're just trying to find, you're trying to find your people, you know? And it doesn't get much better in college, right? Maybe some of you college students, you're in your third week of school and you're still kind of figuring out your place. Like you kind of know some people and you're getting into a rhythm, but you know, especially coming, going home on Labor Day weekend and now coming back, you're like, ah, that was really familiar. This isn't quite as much. Or maybe for you, like, like the feeling that I don't belong, you feel that right now. Like maybe it's been a while since you've been to church, maybe you've never been to church, or maybe this is just a totally new thing, and you're still even like right now trying to figure out like, do I, do I belong here? Like really? Well, this morning, we're beginning our series in the book of Daniel. And Daniel, what the book of Daniel is all about, it's about how to live as a follower of God in a culture where you don't belong. How do you live as a follower of Christ in a hostile world? How do you live faithfully as a Christian in a hostile culture, in a place where you don't really fit in? This is what Cody pointed out in his message last week, right, on following Christ. That if you're going to be a follower of Christ, we need to get used to feeling like we don't belong. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. How do we live in this world where we as Christians really really don't belong. 
So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open to the book of Daniel. If you don't know where Daniel is, open to the very middle of your Bible. You'll probably land in Psalms and start moving your way to the right. And between Psalms and the New Testament, Daniel is kind of somewhere in there. If you, uh, if you picked up one of these study guides, uh, it's on page eight, but these study guides we made for the, our Daniel series, if you don't have one, you can go back to the Resource Center uh, and you can buy one back there. Uh, It'll be really helpful as we walk through this series if you do that. But if you're a Christian and you and you looked around and you've been aware of what's been going on in our culture, in our American culture in the last five to ten years, you've probably looked around at some point and you've asked yourself, what in the world is going on? Like what is happening? Because for a long time in America, being a Christian had some like social benefit had some social cachet. Like, if you were a Christian, like, being a Christian was kind of equated with, like, being a good person, like, being a moral person, you know, you, you kind of did things right, you know, or you were nice, you know, something like that. But not only now, especially in the last, I'd say, five to ten years, does being a Christian not really gain you any sort of social benefit, but now, being a Christian in our culture puts you in a situation where people see you not as an ally, but as an enemy. Where our beliefs in God and truth in sin and the Christian belief of a biblical view of sexuality is more and more putting followers of Christ in the minority. You see, for a long time in our culture, you could be a Christian in America and still feel like you belong. But if you haven't noticed, the winds have changed. It's not, it's not that they, I'd say they are changing, but in large part, they already have changed. And the tide has shifted. And if you're a committed follower of Christ, you are no longer seen in neutral terms, but you are now more often seen as, as an enemy of virtue and as an enemy of progress. Unless we think that our experience as Christians in America is somehow unique in the scope of human history, what we are experiencing right now as Christians in our culture today is just a taste, actually, of what Daniel experienced in his day. You see, long before the book of Daniel, God had rescued his people from, from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, and he rescued them from Egypt for freedom to worship him. And so God rescued them, brought them out of Egypt, and he told them if that, if that they would follow his commands and worship him as God and obey him, that they would enjoy the land that he was going to give them. But then God also told them that if they rebelled against him, if they went against him, did not worship him as a true God and did not obey his commands, that he would punish them and that he would allow foreign nations to come in and to conquer them as judgment. In essence, what God told them was that if they didn't want God, then God would give them exactly what they wanted, a land without God. But time and time and time again, as the people rebelled, you see, God doesn't have a short fuse. God is incredibly patient. And so time and time again, as, as his people rebelled against him, God would send prophets to deliver God's message to his people, calling them to come back to him, calling them to repent from their sin and obey him so that, so that they could enjoy full relationship with him once again. But time and time again, Israel and its leaders put their trust not in God, but in political powers and military alliances. Which brings us 
to Daniel 1. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. As a result of Israel's rebellion against God and refusal to turn, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Now, most commentators think that Daniel was around 16 years old when this happened, right? So that's about a sophomore in high school, I think. So like most sophomores in high school, you can imagine that maybe Daniel wasn't super acquainted with geopolitical issues, kind of in his own world, you know, whatever the sport was at the time. I don't know what it was, but he was probably more interested in some other things until this day. Until the Babylonians showed up at his door. The greatest military and political power of the time showed up at Daniel's door and totally turned his world upside down. And while it, while it probably seemed like Babylon was in total control, I mean, they were the most powerful. They were the greatest. They had the mightiest army. While it seemed like Babylon was totally in control, look at verse 2. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. You see, while it seemed like Babylon held all the aces, while it seemed like Babylon had all the power, while it probably seemed in the eyes of God's people that things were totally out of control, just two verses into the book of Daniel, what we see is that regardless of what happens, God is always in control. While Babylon thought that they were just doing their thing, they were, they were exercising their political and their expansionist power, and they were like sucking up all these nations like in their wake, like Babylon was doing what Babylon does. And while even Babylon probably thought that they were in total control, the reality was that the only reason that Babylon was able to seize Jerusalem was because the Lord allowed them to do it. You see, even when it seems like God is nowhere to be found, even when it seems like God is totally absent, there, there has been and will never be a point in history that God takes his hand off of the rudder. Have you ever wondered where God is in your situation? Have you ever wondered what in the world is going on and where in the world is God in all of this? Have you ever messed up so bad and felt, the con and felt like the consequences of your own sin, of your own screw-ups even, and you felt like even the consequences were in total control? Like you just sleep, I sleep in the bed I made. I'm oh just totally messed up. The consequences feel like they're totally in control. See this. While Babylon thought they were totally in control, even the mightiest military was only able to seize Jerusalem because God allowed them to. Which means that the hostility that we feel in our culture towards Christianity is not outside of God's ultimate control. That while God does not cause evil and God does not create evil, that at all times, God still governs evil. And as he governs evil, 
He governs it to accomplish his good purposes for the sake of his people and for the glory of his name among the nations. And so for you this morning, just two verses in, what we see is that whether it's a consequence of something done by you or whether it's been something done to you, that your situation is never in control of your life more than God is in control of your situation. Let me say that again. Your situation is never in control of your life more than God is in control of your situation. You say, Jake, you don't know my situation. You don't know how bad it actually is. I go, well, the Babylonians sieged Jerusalem and God was still in control. And God is still in control of your situation, of what you are going through, whether it's something done by you or something done to you. He is governing all things for the good of those who love him and for the glory of his name. So verse two, the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. This was really normal. Like, and so... Uh, uh, conquering nations would come in and they would go into the temples of the nations they were conquering and take all of the things that had to do with that nation's religion and put it in their own temple. Kind of like a, uh, like a, a they were just kind of like flexing their power, basically. Like they put it in their own trophy case, like, look how great our gods are, look how powerful we are. That's basically what's happening here. Verse three. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them from the Judites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief unit gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So the Babylonians come in, and they whisk away Daniel and his friend, just a bunch of teenagers. They take them off to Babylon, where they were going to be instructed in all wisdom. And they would learn the Chaldean language, and they would learn the literature, they would learn the culture. And so what they would learn, uh, the language was, was Akkadian, that's the Chaldean language, and the literature was mostly the, the Babylonian myths, the mythology, right? And so what the Jews had was the book of Genesis, basically the creation accounts of how God created all things. What the Babylonians had was the Enuma Elish and the Epic of Gilgamesh, their version of the creation account, how, how the world was not created by one true God, but was created as a result of conflict of many gods, and so they would learn these myths, and they would be schooled in all wisdom. What is all wisdom? All wisdom was magic 101, was sorcery 101. They would learn how to tell the future by analyzing the internal organs of animals. And they would learn how to interpret dreams by reading the books and hearing how past dreams had been interpreted and, and how those things came to pass. And so in other words, 
When Babylonia, when, Babylonia, when Babylonia sieged Jerusalem, the Babylonians took the best and the brightest from Jerusalem and gave them a full-ride scholarship to the Harvard of Babylon. And they gave them a all-expenses-paid-for unlimited meal ticket to the buffet at the king's table. And so you might ask, why in the world would Babylon do this? That, seems, that actually seems fairly generous, right? Some of you college students would really like a full-ride scholarship and a paid-for unlimited meal pass, right? That's what these guys got. You're like, sign me up for Babylon. No. So here's what's going on, right? This was not because of some sort of benevolent posture of Babylon towards these Jewish boys, but you see, Babylon knew that in the long term, luxury and comfort has more shaping power than compulsion and force. Luxury and comfort has more shaping power for most people than compulsion and force. Commentator Ian Duguid explains this really well when he says, it, he says it this way. He says, this provides us with a picture of the world's strategy of spiritual reprogramming. At its most effective, it consists of a subtle combination of threat and promise, of enforcement and encouragement. Those who are totally recalcitrant may be sent to prison camps or gulags if necessary, but the majority of the population are far more easily assimilated if they are well-fed and provided for. After all, more flies are caught with honey than with vinegar. See, Babylon knew that luxury and comfort had more shaping power than compulsion and force. And so what does Daniel do? Well, Daniel takes a stand. Look at verse 8. The first half of verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So check this out. This is a little weird, isn't it? Like, so Daniel, it wasn't the language school where you took your stand, right? It wasn't sorcery class. It wasn't even at the courthouse when they're getting their names changed. Like, for us, changing, changing our name, you know, might be something that some people do, you know, but for them, like, their name was the essence of not only their identity, but their familial affiliation. Their, name had, their names had real meanings that were really meaningful to them and their families. And so to change your name is one of the greatest signals that we are changing your identity. But it wasn't even at the courthouse, as they are having their names changed, that they take a stand. Where is it? It's at the dinner table. Why in the world, Daniel, of all places to draw your line, it wasn't as you're analyzing the, or, the internal organs of animals to tell the future? It wasn't learning the dark arts. It wasn't learning Akkadian. It wasn't reading the Babylonian myths. It's at, it's at dinner time. Why? Why here? Commentators are 
divided on this. Some say that Daniel refused to eat the king's food because it wasn't kosher. And so it, it, because it would have gone against Jewish dietary laws. But the problem with that is that wine was kosher. And it seems like, as, we, as we're going to see in chapter 10, it seems like after some time of mourning, Daniel was eating the meat and drinking the wine. So it doesn't seem that the reason why he drew his line here was because it wasn't kosher. Some commentators think he didn't do it was because the, the food would have been offered to uh, idols, Babylonian gods before it would have been presented to the, uh, to the king and, you know, Daniel and his friends. But that doesn't seem to make sense either because the vegetables also would have been presented to gods before being given to them, and yet they still ate the vegetables. So why? So why, Daniel, draw your line here? Well, the answer might be a little surprising to us. We really don't know. We actually have no idea. You go, that's not satisfying. I know. I tried for the longest time to find a concrete reason. Why I could not find one. There wasn't anything intrinsically wrong. There wasn't anything intrinsically unlawful about the food. Daniel didn't reject the food because there was a clear rule that he would be breaking. So maybe, and the key word here is maybe, because we don't know for sure, but maybe, maybe Daniel drew his line at the dinner table because he knew that the subtle allure of Babylon's table was just as, if not possibly more dangerous than the blatant indoctrination of Babylon's classroom. You see, there are, there are a couple ways that you can form something into a mold, right? You can form it by force, or you can form it by melting. And what Israel had in its history was that Pharaoh had already tried the force route. He had already enslaved Israel. He, he sought to form them by force, by just applying constant, intense pressure and pushing them into the mold of Egypt. But Nebuchadnezzar seems to be a little bit more shrewd. Because even though he sieged Jerusalem by force, he knew that if he could get the best and the brightest of, of Israel to embrace the good life of Babylon, then it would be all over. Unless we think that the book of Daniel has very little to do with our world today, isn't it true that the tactics used by the Babylonian culture to draw Daniel and his friends away from the Lord, isn't it true that that's not really all that different than us today? Especially for some of you college students, right? Think of this. Daniel removed from his hometown and relocated to a different place. Many of you, Cedar Falls is not your hometown. Isn't it interesting how... For some, if not many, it only takes a change of location to dramatically impact your faith. Removed from your hometown, relocated to a different place, continual pressure and indoctrination from every direction to adopt the world's values and the ways of thinking. Every time Daniel walked into his classroom, he was hearing everything he heard was opposed to the Lord. 
Maybe that sounds familiar. And not only that, the constant allure of the comforts and pleasures of this world that seduce us into thinking that the good life is found in everything, that, in, in everything but God, that seduce us into thinking that a night on the hill is as good as an eternity in heaven. Now, there are many places in our world, there are many parts of our world where we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are severely persecuted and violently persecuted for their faith, but is it possible that the greater danger for us as Christians in 21st century America is not future persecution, but is in fact present comfort? Is it possible that for us as Christians, that the greatest threat to our faith is not future persecution, but present comfort? Is it possible that the greatest threat to you as a Christian in America today is not a tyrannical government, but is Turkish delight? Do you remember Turkish delight? That sweet, sugary treat in the Chronicles of Narnia that the white witch uses to lure Edmund into her service? Remember that? That in the story, if you've read the book or if you've seen the movie, that the white witch doesn't lure Edmund by force, at least initially, but instead it's with a soft voice. Instead it's with endless affirmation. Instead it's with a comfortable seat and with junk food. Is it possible that Daniel knew that accepting the king's food would move him beyond learning about Babylon's culture to accepting it as his own? And could it be that for many of us as Christians, we have become so focused on the blatant ways that our culture is opposed to Christianity that we have missed the subtle ways we've already been allured by its comforts and pleasures. In the subtle ways that we have adopted materialism and expressive individualism. Could it be that while you worry about what your kids are learning at school and what they're watching on TV, which by the way, is a good thing to be involved in, we should know what our children are learning in their classrooms and we should be aware of what they're seeing on their screens. But could it be that while we worry about that, could it be that our pursuit of comfort and materialism is shaping them just as much, if not more, away from the values of God's kingdom? That, that as we try to make our world as comfortable as possible, that we are actually moving them and ourselves further and further away from the truth that if you are a Christian, this world is not your home. And so it's possible that knowing these things, Daniel drew his line here. We can't say for sure why he drew his line there, but one thing we can know for sure is that he drew his line somewhere. Because faithfulness to Christ in a hostile culture will mean that you have to draw a line somewhere. 
But also, faithfulness to God in a hostile culture doesn't, isn't only a matter of determination to draw a line, but it actually really matters how you draw your line. Look at, look at the second half of verse 8. So Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank, so he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. He asked permission. You see, in the face of, so, of social and cultural pressures, it, it can be really tempting to respond in a number of ways. Uh, Stephen Jones was really helpful in this. He's the king of quadrants here at Candeo. So if you need some quadrants, go talk to Stephen. So this was really helpful. In the face of social and cultural pressure, it can be tempting to respond in a few different ways. The first one is to totally receive everything that the culture gives you. I think we've got a, a graphic for this to totally receive what the culture gives you and to totally disengage from your biblical convictions, from your beliefs, from, from your own way of thinking and to adopt the values of the culture. And when you do those things, when you totally receive and you totally disengage, you end up just assimilating. You end up just kind of like melting into everything else. And there really is nothing distinctive about you, really. Oh, you say you're a Christian, there's nothing different about the way you think, the way you feel, the way you behave. So that's the first way that we can respond to social and cultural pressure. The second way is to totally reject everything. To say everything in our culture is bad, everything's terrible, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, I'm gonna totally reject it and I'm gonna totally disengage. I'm gonna pull away, I'm gonna isolate. And when you do that, you become absent. You don't assimilate with culture, you become absent from culture. And you, in doing that, you become unable to have any influence in the culture. Because you've created a little Christian biodome that you're just waiting for everything to fall apart and then we'll, me and my family will be okay. So we can respond that way. Or you can flip to the other side and while totally rejecting the culture, you don't disengage from it, but instead you constantly challenge it, constantly. And in doing so, some of you become unnecessarily aggressive in your constant challenge of the culture. Because maybe in your mind, everything is bad. I cannot, for the life of me, find anything good in our culture. And I'm not going to like retreat from it. I'm not going to assimilate into it. But I'm going to become militant and engage it. I'm going to fight everything. And some of you have not only drawn lines somewhere, you've drawn your lines everywhere. And in fact, in doing so, you probably actually have as much influence in the culture as those who are absent from it. Because your voice, no one wants to listen to you because you're kind of a jerk about it. But then there's Daniel, who exercised discernment to wisely receive certain things he still went to class. He still learned the language. He still went to Sorcery 101. He still, he still understood the culture with its good and with its bad. He wisely received certain things 
and he humbly challenged other things. And in doing so, became a faithful presence. He was able to be faithfully present. You see, Daniel didn't draw his lines everywhere, but he also didn't draw his lines nowhere. And he had his lines, but he didn't stand on his, on his lines and shout, but instead he stood on his line and he displayed grace while he asked permission. And notice, he asked permission, and if you read more, when he asked permission, the guy that he asked permission from said, Daniel, I like you, but I like my head even more. And so, no. Sorry, no. And so, he, was, he humbly asked, was told no, and then practiced wisdom and shrewdness as he went, okay, well, I'm gonna ask the guard who's overseeing us. This guy gave me a no, what about this guy? And continued to humbly challenge as he stood on his lines. You see, when Daniel drew his line at the table of Babylon, he was saying that while everyone around me says that my strength comes from Babylon, my strength truly comes from the Lord. When Daniel drew his line at the table of Babylon, he was saying that while everyone around me says that sustenance comes from Babylon, the Lord will provide for my needs. When Daniel drew his line at the table, he was ultimately saying that God is his ultimate sustainer, that God is his ultimate provider, that God is his ultimate source of comfort. When Daniel drew his line at the table of Babylon, he was making space in his life to display his trust in the Lord. His trust in the Lord to give him what he needed that Babylon was claiming that they could give him. And so the question this morning is, do you have your lines? If you are a Christian in our culture today, do you have your lines? Do you know your lines? Where in your life have you drawn lines in the sand that put you in a situation where you need God to come through? Where the lines in your life communicate to yourself and to those around you that I'm not trusting in the world for comfort because God is my comfort. That I'm not trusting in the world for provision because God is my provider. That I'm not trusting in the world, that I'm not looking to this world for my acceptance because I've been adopted by my heavenly father. So Daniel drew his lines. Look at, look at how God came through, verse 15. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. See, the big point of the book of Daniel, and the, 
big point of this chapter is not be like Daniel. We're going to be tempted time and time again throughout Daniel to look at his example and go, the big point is be like Daniel. The big point of Daniel, the big point of this chapter is not be like Daniel. The big point of Daniel and the big point of this chapter is trust in Daniel's God. Trust in the God that Daniel trusted. Because our hope and our strength to be faithfully present in a world that's hostile to our faith will not come as we look to our own strength and faithfulness. But our strength to live as a faithful present in a hostile world will come as we look to Christ, who unlike Daniel, was not removed from his home, but Jesus Christ voluntarily left his home and came to a hostile and foreign world. That Jesus Christ endured greater temptations than Daniel ever did and, than we, and greater temptations than we ever will, and yet remained faithful and pure to the very end. That Jesus Christ, who stepped into the exile of death and emerged victoriously three days later to free us from the bondage of sin and give us hope for a future home, Notice this, he gives us hope for a future home. And what is that home? A new Jerusalem that will never be sieged and that will never fall. So Christian, how can you faithfully live as a Christian in a hostile culture? How can you do that today? Remember this. That as kingdoms rise and as kingdoms fall, whatever happens to you, that God is in control. He has not removed his faithful hand from the rudder of history, not even your life. And trust in his faithfulness to sustain you as you draw your lines with grace and humility not as you become absent from culture, not as you, become, uh, not, as, not as you become hostile towards culture, not as you assimilate into culture, but as you live as a faithful presence within this culture, look to God who is faithfully present with you as you stand faithfully for him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, faithful presence you are faithfully present with us right now. You said you would never leave us, that you would never forsake us. You sent us your Holy Spirit to live within us as a seal and a sign of your promise to keep us to the end. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to know where to draw our lines. Give us the wisdom to know ourselves, to know where we are tempted in our world, to believe that all that we need would come from this world and not from you. And Lord, as we draw our lines and as we stand on those lines, by your grace and strength, would you enable us to wisely receive and to humbly challenge to be a faithful presence in our culture as we remember that you are faithfully present with us. Oh, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.